So we've been going through the book of Romans together. It's, uh, it's, it's, I don't know how many sermons it's been, how long it's been since we started, but it hasn't been a, as many as what some expected when I said I was going to be going through Romans. And Greg told me, uh, was it last week, I think, boy, you're really warp speeding through Romans. It's like, I didn't want to make it into a 10-year adventure, so probably about a year for us to go through this whole book together, but we have seen so far in the book of Romans that it's all about the gospel. That's what this letter is about. It's about Paul's detailed explanation of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the rest of the world. For in Ed, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, or how to have a right relationship with God, is revealed from faith to faith, just as it was prophesied in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. So it is the gospel. It saves people when it is believed. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need to be saved? Well, that's what Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20 is all about. We need to be saved because we are sinners. We're born sinners, condemned before God, condemnation. We deserve the holy wrath of God. And that's true for pagan, you know, total atheists, agnostics, uh, people that just want to live life, don't want to pay any attention to a God. If there is a God, they are their own God. And it's true of self-righteous religious people who believe in their own religious works to get right with God. That's 118 through 320. But all are under sin, and therefore all are condemned. And then that was the bad news, right? That was the bad news. The good news is God does make a way for us to be right with him. It's called justification. A declaration where God calls us righteous. Not because we live righteously, not because we change our ways, but because of the righteousness of his son being imputed or delivered to our account when our sin was delivered to his account. We got the righteousness of God. And it comes to us by faith Alone, It is by God's grace that it comes, but it only comes to us personally by faith. We have to put our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, the end of the chapter. And then last week, I thought it would be good for us to do just a kind of an overview of the doctrine of sanctification, which is this section that we're in now that goes from chapter 6 through 8. And we did that. We just did an overview of what it means, the various stages of sanctification that the Bible reveals to us. And then we took a, a little bit closer look at the, the stage of progressive sanctification. And if you weren't here and you'd like to hear that sermon, you can go online to our website and you can find any of the sermons on Romans that we've done and, uh, and, and, and listen to them. But we did that over, overview. So now, today, we are starting in chapter 6. So uh, a reminder, where we left off last week was with that overview. And it was an overview, really, of not only the broad picture in the Bible about sanctification, which, by the way, I'll remind you that the word sanctification means to be set apart. Set apart from sin and set apart unto God and to be used by him. 
is to be set apart as God's possession and for God's use. So chapter 6 or 8 is Paul's explanation of that. Once we're justified, we need to understand what that's done for us, how that impacts us, how it completely changes everything for us. And these three chapters, I shared with you, can be broken down into three key truths. And the first of those, that for those who have placed their faith in Christ and are justified, that means that they are dead to sin. That's chapter 6. That's the message that we're beginning today in chapter 6. Dead to sin. The second truth is that we are dead to the law. And by that, he doesn't mean that the law has no relevance to us. It means that we no longer have the fear of the condemnation that comes from breaking it. We're dead to the law. That's chapter 7. And then the third big truth in this section is that we are alive in the Spirit. That's chapter 8. His presence in us gives us the victory over sin. How we live for God's glory and honor is all based on what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Now in the first part of this section on being dead to sin, Paul is explaining how the believer's union uh, with Christ is the basis for freedom from both the penalty and, and, and the power of sin. He then goes, and that's verses 1 through 11 that we'll be in today. And then he goes on to exhort the believers to live a practical life based upon that truth that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's verses 12 through 14. And then in the last part of this section, Paul explains that being set free from slavery to sin means that believers must consider themselves as slaves to righteousness. That's verses 15 through 23. So that's where we're going. And Paul begins this section with some questions. But let me start out, not with his question, but some similar questions. Just get us on track. Well, actually, let's read our passage that we're going to cover today, and then I will ask you these questions. So chapter 6 of Romans, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? (laughs) By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you a few questions. If you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, you believe that you can go on living in sin 
like you did before you placed your faith in Christ? Before you understood the grace of God given through the sacrifice of Christ? Since you have come to believe in Christ, that he has provided for you the things that we've talked about in Romans so far, redemption and propitiation and justification and reconciliation and peace with God and, and an escape from the holy wrath of God, which is deserved by sinners. Do you think that you can go on living in sin like you did before? That you can live an unchanged life? Or how about this? Do you think it's possible? I want you to consider this. Do you think it's possible for a Christian to go a day without sinning? I didn't want you to answer. I want you to consider it. Or, or do would you say, well, uh, how long can a Christian go without sinning? Well, this is essentially what Paul is addressing in this passage. So let's go to Paul's question, which he begins Romans 6 where he initiates his teaching on the doctrine of sanctification, that we are set apart from sin unto God as his possession and to be used by him. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, these two opening questions can't be properly understood unless we understand what he has said previous to this, particularly in the previous paragraph. So in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 25, at the, the conclusion of his explanation of justification by faith, how we get right with God, he made a comparison, didn't he, between Adam and Christ. Adam, the first man, and Christ, the second man, if you will, not in importance, but in time. And the effect of their two individual acts upon all humankind. Adam's disobedience had brought sin and death to all. While Christ's death, his act of obedience to the Father, his death and his resurrection had brought justification and life to all who would believe in him. All who would receive him. So Paul ended that section, 5, 12 through 21, with a comment on the difference between law and grace. So look back at those verses. He says, verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he emphasized the effect of the law was that it brought about an increase in sin. And what he meant by that, it, it brought about an increase in awareness of sin and that we stand guilty before God. And in a certain sense, you put a law up and people want to break it because of their sinful condition. They're, they're conditioned to rebel against God's authority, to rebel against God's law. And we gave the example, put up a sign, stay off the grass. Where are you going to find people? On the grass. Put up a sign, don't touch wet paint. What are you going to find? People with painted fingers. Because they're going to go, you know, so put up a sign not to do something. People do it. Put up a sign to do something like go the speed limit. What do they do? They go over the speed limit. 
So that is what he means. The law came for, and it increased sin, not only in the sense that people resist and rebel against it, but also then it gives an increased awareness and guilt for breaking it. And then he ended it with the wonderful truth that where sin increased, the grace of God superabounded. Um, the text, the ESV says, abounded all the more. But the, the Greek word is one word that's used there, and it means superabounded. It's like it's overflowing. It's like a volcano just erupting, you know. God's grace is going to cover wherever sin, you know, increases. Wow. Praise the Lord for that. So, it is against that backdrop that Paul asks the question. That's what he means when he says, what shall we say? To what I've just said. How should we respond to that? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, we would probably think, if we are Christians, believers in Christ, that Paul's teaching on the grace of God, superabounding where sin increases, would result in great praise and adoration to God. We would think that. And that's how we would respond, right? When we're reminded of what we were, and what God did for us was we just re- remembered the sacrifice of God, uh, Christ. It causes us to say, thank you, God. Praise you, God. We lift up your name. We worship you, God. You are worthy of everything that we can give you. But Paul recognizes uh, that a certain problem arose from his teaching on the gospel about justification by grace alone through faith alone. He knew some people would conclude from his teaching that he was saying that since grace increases, um, you know, since sins increase, actually increases the evidence or the manifestation of God's grace, it is perfectly appropriate, maybe even right, uh, for people to live in sin, to sin all the more, because then it would have more opportunity to see God's grace. You say, would anyone really think that? Well, yes, yes, they would. And then something is uh, said about that in the book, Small Letter of Jude, verse 4. There are no multiple chapters. It's just Jude, verse 4. He put it this way. For certain people have crept in, and he means into the church, unnoticed. And they, they are able to do that because they can't claim to be Christians. They claim to believe So they crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So the scenario might go something like this, a person thinking this way. I've been justified by the grace of God. If I continue to live in sin, I'll continue to be forgiven that sin by God. For if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So the more I continue to sin, the more opportunity God will have to express his grace through forgiveness. And therefore, since God's grace will be demonstrated all the more, shouldn't I just continue to live in sin? Now, in asking that question, Paul was either giving expression to the Jewish objectors that we've seen from chapter 2 
through 5, where he's constantly addressing this Jewish straw man and their objections to what he is preaching. And he's doing it all himself as he's writing this, but he's presenting what was known to be, you know, facts with the Jewish people. It's like, Paul, what you're saying is wrong. What you're saying is this. What you're saying is that. And in this case, it would be the Jewish objectors saying, what you're teaching will lead people to think that it's okay to sin, that it, you know, it, it, it's just wrong. He knew that, you know, that that would be the case. Uh, they maintained that the gospel, according to grace taught by Paul, would inevitably lead to lawlessness or sinful living, weakening a person's uh, sense of moral responsibility and actually encouraging people to sin. And so he's either addressing that issue, the Jewish objector, or he's addressing what he knew to be an actual doctrinal issue in churches, like in Galatians chapter 5. Now, Galatians is all about law and grace. It's almost a miniature short letter to Romans. It's like, I want to say the same thing, but I don't have the same amount of time to say it, so I'll just say it short. But in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, we read him say, if for, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, only do not allow your freedom to be used for sensual desires, for fulfilling, I think that King James has, for licentiousness. Don't allow your freedom in Christ to cause you to think that you can live however you want. So it could be both. I tend to think that he's really addressing the uh, Jewish objectors because he's been doing that throughout the letter. But either way, uh, it's true that there are people that would misunderstand and misstate what Paul was actually teaching uh, about the gospel. And, you know, this is no different than religious objectors to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. Today, they say essentially the same thing. Those who are legalistic in nature and have a long or short list of the kinds of things that you must do and the things that you must not do in order for you to consider yourself a Christian, they voice the same objection to the, the gospel that they, they were in Paul's day when he wrote this. So you may have heard someone say something like this. Well, you say that sin is not the issue because, you know, it was taken care of at the cross. You know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he, when he died, he bore the sin of the world on, on his shoulders. And, and, and so you say that salvation, I mean, that sin is not really the issue anymore. That means that all I have to do is trust in Jesus as the Savior and, and then I can and be forgiven. And then I can go out and do whatever I want to do because it's already been forgiven because it is true. God's forgiveness of our sins wasn't just our past sins. It covers our present sins and our future sins, doesn't it? So they, they would just misconstrue that and say something wrong about it. So it's critical that we notice that Paul does not deny the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, which he has taught up to this point, and neither do we. <laughs> Let me make that plain. We do not change that in any way. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the fact of the matter is that salvation is a free and unmerited gift. 
the, the true gospel message of salvation by grace through faith is always at risk. I want you to know this. It's always at risk of being attacked, especially by religious people. Especially by legalistic religious people. Now listen to something from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in the 1900s. He's with the Lord now. But listen to what he has to say regarding this issue. The preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. That is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. Let me show you what I mean, he says. If a man preaches justification by works, no one would ever raise this question. If a a man's preaching is, if you want to be a Christian, and, and if you want to go to heaven, you must stop committing sins. You must take up good works. And if you do so regularly and constantly and do not fail to keep on at it, you will make yourself Christians. You will reconcile yourself to God and you will go to heaven. Obviously, a man who preaches in that strain would never be liable to this misunderstanding. No one would say to such a man, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because... The man's whole emphasis is just this, that if you go on sinning, you are certain to be damned. And only if you stop sinning can you save yourself. Hmm. And so the question, once again, that Paul raises is, are are we to continue to live in sin so that grace may abound? That's the question. It's verse 1. The answer is verse 2 through 10. It's 2 through 10. And Paul shows his horror at such a thought that people would actually say those kinds of things, that believers could go on sinning in the same way they did before they were saved with these words, by no means. Notice how he says that in verse 2. By no means, exclamation point. (laughs) Now the King James Version puts it, God forbid, The Phillips translation has, what a ghastly thought. I like that one. The NAS has, may it never be. And of course the ESV and I think the NIV have, by no means. Now, it is the reaction of a mind that is mentally and morally and spiritually appalled and repulsed by such a thought that we could go on living in sin so that grace could abound. As I pointed out previously, Paul uses this short phrase, by no means, in, in Greek it's just meganoita, it's, it, it, it's a descriptive, no, it can't happen, it can't be. Uh, and uh, he uses this several times in the book of Romans to make his point that his, what the arguments against what he's teaching are appalling, they're sick, they're wrong. He said in 
3, 4 and verse 6 and 31. He said it in chapter 6 and verse 2 here. Uh, in 7, 7 and 13, he'll say it again. In 9, 14, he'll say it again. In 11, 1 and verse 11, he'll say it again. By no means. God forbid. What a ghastly thought that is. And it always has the sense of not only am I appalled at what you are suggesting, but it also includes this idea that though you have the right premise, you have come to the wrong conclusion. Though you have the right premise, you've come to the wrong conclusion. So Paul doesn't disagree with the premise that salvation by God's superabounding grace is awesome, that it covers sin, but... He was sickened by the conclusion that it could ever lead one into thinking that it's okay to live in sin as you did before you came to know Christ. And Paul goes on to share five things in verse 2 through 10 that are true of believers that will keep them from abusing the truth of the gospel in their lives. Because the, the truth of the gospel should never lead to a view that says it's okay to go on living in sin so that grace may abound. That is the backdrop to all of this. So the first thing, if you're filling in your insert, the first truth that he gives us is that we are united with Christ in his death. We are united with Christ in his death. And so Paul starts his answer with another question. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it. And the, the statement that believers have died to sin is mm, fundamental to this passage. Its importance can't be overstated. It is the central focus of this entire chapter that we are dead to sin. So notice that Paul does not say that sin died to us. It says that we died to sin. There's a difference. And the point that he's making is not that Christians will not commit acts of sin, but they should not continue to live in it as though nothing has changed since they were justified by faith. When they were sanctified, set apart as God's possession and for God's use. And with this question, Paul's not arguing the impossibility of Christians sinning, no. Let's make sure we understand that. But rather, he's arguing against the incongruity of a Christian doing so. The question is not whether believers are able to sin. They are. But should they continue to live in sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He's going to make that plain. And so Paul says, believers have died to sin, right? Died to sin. I think we realize this, that death and life don't coexist at the same time. We can't be dead and living with respect to the same thing at the same time, can we? Yeah, it's going to be interactive, okay? Yes, thank you. No, we can't. And, and by the way, the term died, it's important to notice, it's tense. Yes, grammar is your friend. It is. It's past tense. And it points to a definite time in the past when this death to sin took place. And that point in time was the moment that we were justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there certainly is a sense. There certainly is a sense in which Christians are to die daily to, to sin. And there, there, 
certainly is a time in the future when we will die to sin forever and be raised up to sin no more when we receive our glorified bodies and we're present with the Lord. But it is not those things that Paul is thinking of in our present text. He's referring to our death, to the penalty and, and the power of sin over our lives. When we were justified by faith and positionally sanctified, it was the end of the reign of sin and the beginning of the reign of grace in our lives. Wow, I like that. And that's what he has said in this text. If you paid attention as I was reading it, he said that very thing. Sin, the reign of sin was put to an end and the reign of grace began. So Paul more fully explains our death to sin in verses 3 and 4. This is still under this idea of we are united with Christ in his death. So it was accomplished, he says, by being baptized into Christ. And then further, he says, we're baptized into his death, right? Into his death. So what Paul is speaking about here should have been very familiar, understood by them, as he indicates when he says at the beginning of verse 3, do you not know? That's a rhetorical question. They should know. Believers should know this. But even if they haven't been taught, they should know it in their heart. They should know it in their heart that they died to sin in Christ. They were baptized into his death. They should know he, and he appeals to their knowledge of their union with Christ through baptism, doesn't he? Now, some of you may be thinking of a baptismal tank or maybe a lake or a river at this point, but that is not the type of baptism that Paul is referring to in this text. The baptism he's speaking about here is spiritual. It's not physical. It's, we could say it's dry, not wet. And what he is referring to is the fact that at the moment that we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we were baptized or immersed. By the way, that's the meaning of the Greek word baptizo, from which we get the English word baptize. It means to immerse something, to dunk it. Like a ship that goes down at sea was baptized in the sea. Uh, a, a piece of cloth that was dyed was immersed into the dye, and it comes out different. And that's what the word baptism means, to be immersed. And so when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we were immersed or put into the body of Christ and organically united with him and with each other. Amen. Man, that is awesome. And Paul speaks about that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He, he writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And this text says all as well. We were all baptized into him. This is spiritual baptism. Not talking about, you know, charismatic gifts or anything like This is us being outside of Christ and then in Christ. We're in Adam's race, as we talked about in chapter 5, and now we're in the race of Christ. Hmm. So union with Christ in his death is the reason that we have died to sin's penalty, right? So whatever, so whatever this death to sin is, I don't know if you've considered this, is true concerning the Lord Jesus and those who have placed their faith in him because we were baptized into his death, 
right? His death. So the question then becomes, in what way did Christ die to sin? Huh. Well, it can't mean that he became unresponsive to it, because that would imply that at some point in time, he was responsive to it. And, and it, that would be intolerable, and that would be a contradiction to what we know the scripture says about Christ, that he was, in fact, without sin, Hebrews 4 says. Amen. Nor can it mean that he was dying daily to sin for the same reason. That would imply that he was sinning, and he was without sin. So his death to sin can't be they became unresponsive to it, or that he was dying daily to it, right? Well, how about us? How about us? Have we died to sin in the sense that we are unresponsive to it? Good. I was waiting for a flash of lightning or something to come down, you know, like the Uzzah experience. Of course not. We are not unresponsive to sin. And we should note that the text, again, does not say that sin died to us, but that we died to it as Christ did. As Christ did. So there's only one way in which it may said, be said that Jesus died to sin, and that is that he died bearing the penalty of sin for us. He died bearing its penalty. So Paul's saying that here, we too have died to sin. Not in the sense that we have personally paid its penalty. Christ has done that in our place, right? But in the sense that we share in the benefits of his death. He bore the penalty, so we would not have to bear the penalties. So we are dead to the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. Amen. Yes. You people need to get with it here. <laughs> Christ is our federal head. We talked about that in Romans 5, didn't we? Adam was the federal head of all mankind. Christ became the federal head of those who received him. He is our federal head, and he bore sin's penalty for us. And, and since the penalty of sin has been dealt with by Christ, we are free from its awful penalty and, and the power of sin over our lives. The second truth that Paul identifies that helps us not to ever come to the conclusion that it's okay to live in sin so that grace could abound. We are united with Christ in his resurrection. We are united with Christ in his resurrection. Notice that he says that. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So our union with Christ in his resurrection takes us to the next spiritual reality. Being united with Christ in his resurrection results in believers walking in a new and different way, a new and different lifestyle. Now this makes perfect sense if you think about it, because believers, as believers, we are free from sin's domination. It no longer has the power over us that it once did. It no longer holds sway over us because of Christ's sacrifice. As certain it is, it is that Christ rose from the dead, Paul says, so it is equally certain that we experience resurrection. And that is both spiritual and physical. Both spiritual and physical. Now, 
even though there is a, a future sense to what Paul is talking about here, that we will be raised from the dead when he returns for us, the great uh, rapture call, you know, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The focus in this passage includes or even focuses on the truth that been, we've been raised to a new kind of life, a newness of life. And that happened from the moment that we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's important to add to this that when he speaks about newness of life, Paul's referring to both newness of life in time and in quality. Newness of life in time and in quality. Now, what I mean by that is from the moment of our faith in Christ, we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away and the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. A definite moment where everything changed. The old was past. What was the old? It's all that we were in Adam. The new has come. What's that? All that we are in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. And there's a definite newness of life that begins at that particular moment in time when we are born again. Yet there's also a newness in the quality of life, isn't there? That is experienced by the believer who is no longer under the penalty and power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, bound to obey its mastery over us. We are free, we are free to live in a way that honors God, glorifies God. For freedom, Christ set you free. Only don't allow your freedom to be used for sensual desires, for licentiousness. We're free to live in a way that honors God. And that is an entirely new quality of life. We do not have to wait for a physical resurrection and glorified bodies to experience that. Praise the Lord. We don't have to wait that long. No, it happens when Satan's hold on us is broken through faith in Christ. He no longer has mastery over us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, one of the difficulties of this section is is Paul's change in meaning, and maybe you've already picked this up, his change in meaning when he's talking about death and resurrection and life. In some cases, he's clearly talking about physical death and resurrection. In some cases, he's talking about spiritual death and resurrection. But as we examine these verses, 2 through 10, his answer to the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, this difference kind of needs to be kept in mind. And the point Paul's making in his discussion is not intended to confuse us. I mean, let's face it, we get confused far too easily. But if we think about it, we'll understand that what he's doing here is emphasizing that our union with Christ and his death and resurrection guarantees our own resurrection, both to a newness of life in the here and now and a newness of life in the future day when we get our glorified bodies. So, let's not forget the main point that Paul is making in this section. We should never consider it right or good or even okay for believers to continue in sin that grace may abound, that God's grace might be shown. He's not speaking here about our glorious Future, but our present reality of being set apart from the penalty and power of sin. It is morally incongruent, it is morally inconceivable, to quote from the Princess Bride. 
inconceivable that those who are united with Christ in his death and resurrection should continue living in sin as before. It's just inconceivable that we would think that that's okay. And on verse 5, Paul kind of just says, or says it again what he's just said. If we've been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And there perhaps the resurrection is more focused on the final resurrection, right? The physical resurrection. But then he continues in verse 6 where he draws upon the, the, the knowledge of the believers. Notice that again, verse 6 says, we know. <laughs> believers should know this. What they should know is, number three, our old self was crucified. Now, some of the translations have our old man and the reason it has that is because the Greek word anthropos is used in the text, but because we live in such a sensitive culture, we don't say man because that would mean males. And Or does, what does it mean to be a male? What does it mean to be a, no, he's talking about mankind, right? He's talking about humankind, not male or female. So he, he says our old self was crucified. And it should be abundantly obvious to believers that a thorough, Change has taken place in their life when they put their faith in Christ. And what Paul says, we know as believers that our old self was crucified with him. So when he speaks of our old self, he's referring again to what we were prior to being declared righteous by faith in Christ. As members of Adam's fallen race. And that is in contrast with what we are in Christ. So what we were were unregenerate people in Adam, and what we are are regenerate people in Christ. Notice also that he says that our old self was crucified. Quite a, quite a trip. He doesn't just use the word death here, put to death. He says the word crucified with him. And it doesn't say we are being crucified. Again, tense. We... It, our old self was crucified, past tense, not is being crucified. The, the tense of the verb presents this as an action that took place in the past. Again, it conveys the idea that our old self, our old self was thoroughly put to death because that's what crucifixion always led to. There was no coming down from it. There was no walking away from it. It was death by a, a horrible means. So, at a certain point in time in our history, we were crucified. When was that? Well, when we believed in Jesus, when we put our faith in him. So think of this. In God's mind, and we could say that this was from all eternity, before he ever said, let there be light or anything, this was already a fact in his mind, right, that we would be crucified. But in time, let's look at it in the sense of it. In time, it took place in God's mind at the cross, Right? Well, we weren't at the cross. We're a long time after it. So what this also means is that the point in time is when we believed. When we believed. That's the point in time when we were crucified with Christ. The important point is not that this is not a process that he is talking about in this passage. It's, it's a mistake. Now listen closely. It's a mistake to think that the old self and the new self lived together in the same person. That's right. I said that out loud. 
A lot of people think differently about this. But this text says our old self was crucified. Well, if it was crucified, it, it died. Well, if it died, it's not living, right? It's not living in us. We're new self. We're new people in Christ. New creatures in Christ. The old self was crucified with Christ. It was put to death by virtue of our union with him through faith. Wow, this is some heavy teaching. That's like uh, back to the future. That's heavy. It is kind of heavy, but boy, is it important that we know and encouraging at the same time. So at this point in time, you might be thinking of a couple other passages. Maybe you aren't, but I was thinking of them. Colossians 3.9 and Ephesians 4 and verse 22, where Paul exhorts believers to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Well, is that different? Is it is a con- contradiction? How can Paul say in Romans that the old self was crucified, put to death, and then turn around and tell other Christians in another church to put off the old self? No, it is not a contradiction. You see, in those other passages, the point he's making is that the believers were to live in accordance what they, with what they actually were as new creatures. They were to put off the old self and put, in the sense of putting off the old self behaviors, the kind of things that was normal, habitual, common to them as they were as an old man. And they were to put on the behaviors of faithful living to the glory of God as new people in Christ. But in Romans 6, the point is that what we were before faith in Christ has completely been put to death. Get that? This is important. It was put to death. Everything had changed at that point in time. What we were as, as people of Adam's fallen race under sin's tyrannical rule, condemned before God, that's gone forever. Amen. Yes, yes, okay. I'm going to come down and sit and say it if, if, <laughs> if you don't. Just, just giving you a warning. By virtue of our union with Christ through faith, our old self died and, and our new self began. And as such, we're standing before God as forgiven sinners, declared righteous, no longer condemned. We are declared righteous by faith in Christ. The fourth truth that should keep us from everything and it's okay to continue in sin that grace may abound is our body of sin was rendered Null and void. Our body of sin was rendered null and void. Now, in the ESV, this says that the purpose of our old self being crucified was in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Other translations have might be done away. Both are good translations. I'm just giving you a different uh, way of saying it. It was brought uh, to a place of being null and void. Now, what does he mean by the body of sin? Because that's important. What he's referring to is our physical bodies. This. Our physical bodies, which are so easily drawn towards sinful impulses. Prior to our justification by faith, our bodies were in fact controlled by sin, right? They were controlled by sin. We were under its dominion. And as a result of crucifixion, our bodies of sin were nullified. I hope this is beginning to sink in. It was no thought. It was brought to nothing as far as its power over us. 
Now, don't hear me saying that this means that as a Christian you won't sin or that you know, you'll never struggle with sin. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying what Paul's saying, what God is saying. The body that was so controlled and dominated by sinful impulses, that's been brought to a, a, a place of being done away with or being brought to nothing. When we believed in Christ, everything changed. The body of the believer is no longer one that is controlled and conditioned by sin. And in our new state, we have bodies that are controlled and conditioned by what has become the, the ruling principle of the believer. You know what that is? It's obedience unto righteousness. Not disobedience under, under sin, but obedience unto righteousness. Number five. This fifth truth. We are no longer slaves of sin. Do you notice all of these are connected, aren't they? Every one, every one of these, all five of them are connected. They're just giving a little different hue to it or an additional sub-point to further explain that we are dead to sin. I mean, that's the whole point. We are united with Christ and we are dead to sin. So the purpose of the body of sin being brought to nothing, Paul says, is so that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin. We'd no longer be enslaved to sin. So here's a question to consider. I mean, is Paul saying that the believer will reach a state of complete holiness in which, you know, in this life where he no longer or she no longer sins? The obvious answer to that is no. What he is saying is that believers are no longer under sin's dominion. We're no longer slaves of sin. And the difference is that now we have a choice. (laughs) Now we have a choice as to whether we're going to honor God, glorify God, do what is right or not. Before we had no choice. Sin was our master. We were its slaves. We were bound to do what it says. And he's personifying sin here. Now we are free from our old master. However, the freedom we have is, is not a freedom to do what we want or what we please. It is a freedom to do what is right and honorable and God-glorifying. Before we were justified by faith, we, we couldn't choose what is right and good and godly. But now... Now we are able to choose. Praise him. Then the last statement that he makes in verse 7 explains the reason why, right? The reason why we're no longer slaves to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. He's kind of concluding the argument. He started with we're dead to sin in Christ. Now he's kind of concluding that in a sense. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, this brings us back to the main point of the paragraph again. We have been justified by faith and set apart by, by God for his possession and for his use are no longer bound to the doing of evil any more than the slave who is deprived of physical life is bound to execute the commands of his master. <laughs> you know, a master could go to the dead slave. He's laying there. If it's not in the grave, it's on the ground. And he could, Get up! You need to do what I tell you to do. You're my slave. Is that slave going to respond? No, he's dead. Did you get it? We're dead to sin. We're dead to sin's mastery. We're no longer slaves to him. He is no longer our master. Christ is. Christian who has died with Christ and risen to new life in him doesn't have to respond to his old master. Sometimes we choose to listen to his beckoning call, don't we? Sometimes we, we listen to those 
impulses from our body that so are easily drawn to it. Before, we couldn't resist. Before, we could not say no. Now we can. Now we have the ability to to choose to do his right. Now that's going to be all explained how that happens when we get to chapter 8. He's just laying it out here that this is the case. And then in verses 8 through 10, it sounds very similar to what Paul has already said in the passage, so I'm not going to read those again. But he is driving his point home, and what he drives home is that we can be confident. Brad read that verse. We know, we believe that uh, since we're united with Christ in his death, we will also live with him. So we're in union with Christ from the moment we believe, and this glorious union lasts forever. Catch that last part, it lasts forever. This text is actually, this part of this text is actually emphasizing our eternal security in Christ. You say, I don't see that. Where is that? Well, notice what he says. It is true that we know that we'll have this life with him, because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Christ will never die for sin again, will he? His death to sin was a one-time event. And his death to sin covered all sin. He's not going to have to come again and say, oh, these people, they've gotten so bad, I'm going to have to die for them again. No, he died once for all, and that's what verse 10 That phrase that he says, he died to sin once for all in the life he lives, he lives to God. That indicates that there's no secondary uh, offering necessary to deal with our sin. So where's the eternal security? Well, once sin was dealt with through the sacrifice of Christ, his life and ours, because we're united with him in his death and his resurrection, continues forever. He lives to God. We live to God. How long does he live to God? Forever. How long do we live for God? Forever. That's exactly right. Resurrection marked the victory, didn't it? Not only for Christ conquering sin and death for himself, but for all of us who have put our faith in him. We are dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins, but now we are alive in Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul ends with a command. We'll tie this together next week in verses 12 through 14 because it it really is like the end of this paragraph and the beginning of what he's going to say in the next. But once again, I would say that Paul actually essentially states the application. (laughs) He gives us the application of the truth that he has shared with us. And it's given in the form of a command. Not a suggestion, not a, hey, you ought to think about this, not a, you ought to do it, but if you don't, I understand it might be hard. No. This is a command. What is the command? So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. (laughs) So what Paul's stressing is that we can take it to the bank, so to speak, that, that our union with Christ means that we are dead to sin, both its penalty and its power, and have been raised to a newness of life in the here and now and in the forever. And and he uses this word consider, consider yourselves. That word means to think of something as true. I think uh, probably the King James verse uh, version has, uh, translation has reckon. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. That's a good word as well. 
It, it means to think of something as true, reckon it as being so, and it is written in such a way that we are to think or reckon this on an ongoing basis. Yes, tense is important. This is a present tense. Keep on thinking this. Keep on thinking what? I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to its penalty. I'm dead to its power. And I'm alive in Christ. And that will be the case forever. Amen. Keep thinking that. Amen. And please understand this. That considering something is true is not to make believe. <laughs> you know, it's not screwing up your faith to, to believe something that you really doubt to be true. We're not to pretend that our old self has died and we're new creatures. We are actually to realize that our old self did die with Christ when he died for our sins. And our union with him is forever. So we are to count as true what is actually true. We are to consider ourselves what we really are. What is that? Dead to sin and alive in Christ. Hallelujah. So Paul turns from exposition, giving us this truth, explaining this wonderful truth or sanctification in Christ, and he he moves to exhortation in this verse. And he's taught us, again, I'm repeating because it's so important to repeat. It's so important that we understand this. He's taught us that we're dead to sin's penalty and power because we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And now he tells us that we're to have an abiding conviction, right? Keep thinking this. Have this abiding conviction that we are, in fact, dead to sin and alive in Christ. (laughs) We must have a deliberate and sober understanding of our position in Christ. Put it this way. We must see the facts, understand the facts, believe the facts, and count the facts as being true. That's what he's saying here. Remember, Paul is telling us that we're free from the penalty and power of sin. And consequently, we are free. We are free now to live for the glory of God and for his purposes. Because we're set apart as his possession and for his use. So truly sanctified living, because that is what we need to get to, right? Not just being sanctified positionally, but sanctified practically. So truly sanctified living begins with with understanding your sanctified position. Biblical behavior actually begins with biblical thinking. Your practice in life depends on the teaching from the scriptures that you've taken into your heart and mind, your soul. So, we've just arrived at the jetway. We're getting off the plane with these words. Let's live as sanctified people. Let's live that way. Let's live as sanctified people because that is what we are if we're united with Christ by faith. Hopefully all of us are. And if you are not and you realize that, you're still dead in your sins. You're not dead to sin. You're dead in your sins. And God's wrath will come upon you at the day of judgment. And you will not like the end result being separated from the glory of God and his mighty power forever. Hell will not be a place where there will be partying. It won't be like, well, you got this condo or this condo. and this, You know, it doesn't really matter. No. 
Hell and the lake of fire is a place of suffering and torment, and it only belongs to those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and do not know God. So if you do not know God through the gospel, then today I urge you, today would be the day for you to turn in faith to Christ, because you are a sinner. You are a sinner, and you need to be forgiven of your sin to be right with God. Lord, we are thankful for the word, thankful for this beautiful gift that you've given us, the scriptures, your book, not our book, not man's thoughts about you, it's your word given to us, your very words. And these words bring life, they bring peace, they bring joy and thanksgiving and kindness and so much more. We, we just are so thankful for the life that you've given us in Christ and through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Pray that we'll honor you, that we'll live as sanctified people because you've made us sanctified people. Thank you also for the food that we're going to eat, your provision of that. You give us all that we need for life and for godliness. So praise your holy name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen.